Sensorial with Eunice, a portal to Asian diaspora creativity and healing. I'm your host, Eunice KS, and welcome to this week's episode. Thank you so much to those of you who've been sharing with me what's on your hearts, what's resonated with you from the previous episodes. It truly fills me up with so much joy every time I hear from you. It truly feels like a community in that way and an interactive experience. And by me sharing my story and by me holding space for these different stories, I hope it encourages you to share your own story with me and with others. And the best way to do that is to join the community through patreon.com slash sensorial with Eunice. There you'll find that I put together some exciting community offerings like somatic healing experiences, ancestral healing meditations, bonus behind the scenes, exclusive content, and also opportunities to connect in a more intimate setting, whether it's one-on-one or with the community. So be part of the founding member circle to be the day ones of the sensorial community by going to patreon.com slash sensorial with Eunice. You can also find me on Instagram at eunice.ks. And if you like email better, go to eunicekscom to sign up for my newsletter and hit the reply button to directly connect with me. All right, let's get to the episode. Enjoy the show. So I am very excited to introduce you to my friend and special guest today. She is a 1.5 generation Korean American who has crafted her career around building bridges between cultures, between creators and fans, between music and tech. And she's bilingual and bicultural and has set the strategic groundwork for collaborations between the U.S. and South Korea in her roles across music and film. And beyond that, I know her to be a creative, soulful, sassy human being with so many interesting life experiences. So grab your journal, grab your water. It's my pleasure to welcome Soy Kim. Soy, how are you doing today? Wow, what an intro. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I am doing well. (laughs) So good to have you on. I feel like I just saw you in New York when I was visiting. But honestly, when I think back to our relationship, what really stands out to me is our time in Korea. Me too. It was really cool to run into you there after college, right? Because I mean, It's interesting when people talk about college as being these like four really transformative years, because in my opinion, I think if anything, college was just a tumultuous period of time where you're like, what the heck is going on? Who am I? What are these opinions? And you honestly walk out of college, in my opinion, with very like nascent ideas that are just starting to be formed. And when we reconnected in Korea, what was so cool about that was we were both starting this journey of actually trying to figure out like, who are we really becoming? What do we care about? Where are we aligning our lives towards? And I think what was so special was we were both in our motherlands, like experiencing that together too. Yeah. And I want to ask you about this too, because for me, I describe it as a pilgrimage back to my motherland, my ancestral land, because I'm also 1.5 generation. And I think a lot of us feel like this yearning to reconnect with our roots, our ancestors, our dual cultures, you know, and for me, it was like a creative, spiritual journey. And I'm curious what initially drew you back to Korea and your decision-making process to going back. Of course. You know, I think, so being 1.5 generation in particular is really unique because I think you're always on the spectrum where you're trying to figure out 
like, what really am I? Because you're often also a bridge at home, right? Mm-hmm. Since your parents' generation is that first generation, not really fully American, but trying to make a life here, but also so clearly tied to their roots. And for me growing up, I just honestly ignored the Korean side of me because it was very easy to. We were raised here. Our parents really wanted us to assimilate and not because they were ashamed of our culture, but because they really just wanted us to be able to survive here. But for me, my parents moved back when I started college. And so it was really interesting starting to go back there as a student in college during winter break, summer break. I remember going back to Korea and feeling so painfully out of place uh, where I finally looked like I belonged, but I couldn't understand what people were saying. I didn't have the same sense of pop culture references, couldn't relate with people my age. And I think for me, it was honestly really sad in the beginning because here I was in a place where I felt like I should belong because people actually looked like me and I could blend in seamlessly for the first time in my life. And I never felt more like a sore, like thumb just sticking out. Yeah. And so it was truly a journey to understand and come to terms with my heritage and learning how to speak, read and write Korean at a fluent level as an adult. There's something so humbling about that when you're trying to fumble your way through society at like a five-year-old operating level of <laughs> Korean. Yeah. And I think that's why I just love it so much though, because it was really hard earned. It was truly earned through like blood, sweat, and tears. And now I really think of Korea as home. Um, and I can't imagine not having that side of me. Yeah, no, I kudos to you and you did it and you're doing it, like truly being that bridge, not only in your home, but across continents, across divisions across disciplines and your work in music and film and all these different genres, so to speak, just blend in so seamlessly, or you're just like that weaver between these industries. And I know in college, I don't think we actually talked about this ever too in depth, but I know you um, developed your own minor in screenwriting, right? And I think you did a lot of like Korean influenced things like art when you were in college. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about what kinds of scripts or artwork that you were creating under that minor. Totally. So also like a quick step back. I went to college totally unsure of what I wanted to do because all through high school, I thought I wanted to be a professional cellist. And that was what I was obsessed with and what I was in love with. And then I went to school and all of a sudden, like I wasn't going to be a child anymore. I had no sense of identity and it was really shocking, honestly. And so I remember that first year, just kind of fumbling around trying to figure out what I wanted to study. Initially, I was really drawn to African studies because I was just so honestly, like this huge desire to understand this rich culture and the fabric of all those different cultures and languages and the things you were seeing just coming out of the African continent. I was so curious, but I remember going to those classes and often leaving them being like, this is so beautiful. I wish I could understand this for my own people. Like, you know, and that's when it started to really click for me that I knew so little about my own heritage, my own history beyond, you know, just the basic things of like, I guess in September, we have chuseok and we eat tukuk <laughs> and like, this is a thing we do because we're Korean. Like that was like literally just my understanding of our country. And so that led me to sociology because it's like the study of societies of people. And then at the time, also very lucky, we had our first professor who joined Harvard sociology department 
Professor Paul Chang, I really just like credit him for changing the trajectory of my life because he was the first professor that we ever had who came to teach Korean sociopolitical sociology. That had never existed before. I wish I took that class now, but it was so good. It really blew my mind. And I remember sitting in class and being like, oh my gosh, (laughs) like, I've always thought Korean people were very intense and then taking a class on like our history and our politics and how our country had been formed. I was like, Oh, this yeah. like, cause we truly like <laughs> carry like generational things. Right. So I remember sitting in the class being like, Oh, <laughs> like everything was starting to connect in my mind. And I really wanted to explore that further. Um, but I didn't only want to do that in the format of like sociological essays and papers because that honestly doesn't really go so far. And if you think about like, how can we share stories in a really digestible way? If we think about the earliest forms of storytelling and how we've like, as a people in this world have had a record of our storytelling, it's been through like oral traditions, or it's also been through like written things that are left behind. And I would say that most people would rather watch a TV show or read a book than read a sociological essay about why the society is the way it is. Like, that's really intense. Yeah, I mean, now it's even shorter. I know before we hopped on, we were talking about TikTok and just how storytelling looks different these days. And if we're talking about cross-cultural, like evolving, how we digest information, how we share, even our identity looks different. So I think it's so cool that you approached learning about your own culture through a sociological lens. And then it sort of led to different forms that are maybe a little bit more modern in terms of digesting and sharing information. Yeah, that's exactly what led me to screenwriting. And I think what I loved about screenwriting was in film, reality is suspended, right? And so you can kind of draw from the things that are true and historical and real, but there's room for like a little bit of magic. There's room for the things that you wish could exist that don't exist yet. And it's like how you can really create the blueprint for the future that doesn't exist. And so I just love that about film and just art forms in general. You have the agency and the creative license to change how we understand things, right? Because we're supposed to be really stress testing the limits of what is real and what is not. And so I think that's why I fell into film, honestly. And that's why I wanted to do screenwriting because I was thinking, okay, so Korean history is really intense, but (laughs) how might I make this more digestible? Like, let's add a little bit of fantasy. And so much of our history and like our people, if you look at the content that's like coming out of Korea today, there's always an element of like mysticism or romanticism. (laughs) Exactly. Like everybody just wants like to pretend or like imagine that it could be different. And that's, to me, was like really exciting. And so that's kind of how I fell into the screenwriting part of what I was doing. That's so cool. And I wonder then, as you were exploring this, like as an academic or as a filmmaker, as an artist, like has that shifted your relationship with your identity yourself and your relationship with your body, your roots, like your healing process? Because I imagine it's so personal. That's a really loaded question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think if anything, you know, in the beginning, when you learn about all of the weight that our people have carried, it can be really heavy. I recently was learning about also like generational trauma and how like it literally carries on 
across, I think, up to 12 or 13 generations. Mm -hmm. And if you just think about it in those terms, it can be really limiting where you're like, great. So I come from a people with a really intense history. So I guess I'm just going to be scarred forever. But I don't think that's true. Um, And so similar to how storytelling, you're allowed to kind of dream for the future and really bend reality and try to hope for the better. I think I see some of that in the way that I approach my own healing and my own experience of my identity as Korean and American. It's just this belief that I'm not limited by what we're supposed to be seen as or by what people would like us to be or by who I guess we're technically supposed to be because of like our people history. You can change that. But it's this like embracing of who we have been and where we've come and just hope for the future. Yeah. And that process of feeling limitless, feeling like, you know, you can create magic and sort of transmute all that's happened into something that is beautiful and digestible. And also it can be intense. I will say Korean films are some of the most intense films I have ever consumed. (laughs) But I think it's so cool to see just the amount of creativity that's coming out of the field right now, straight from Korea, but also just Korean diaspora, Asian diaspora creatives are just having a moment right now where we're just sort of like, you want our stories? Here they are, you know, taking BTS or Squid Game as an example, like it went from launch to number one globally in I think four days or something like that. Like that is remarkable. And I know you're really involved with like US, South Korea, like music and all that stuff. So I'm interested to hear kind of what you're most excited about in terms of the field of like music and digital storytelling, especially as it relates to South Korea and the US. Yeah. So I was just talking about this with someone earlier today about how I I think we're seeing the fourth wave of this, right? And so if you go to the very earliest like era of Korean music, I mean, I'm about to get a little nerdy with you. Yes, let's do Um, it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the earliest form of like Korean music that was meant to be like modern was honestly looking at what was going on and like other markets that were more mature like America and trying to copy it. Right. And so we started with just like, this is how it's done. Let's copy that. That's like when you see the era of like, you know, Sotezi and the boys, yeah. and like, you know, the first like wave of like, this is a band. Mm-hmm. Then you move on to like the second wave where Korea is like now starting to experiment with like, but like, how do we make this ours? And you see artists like Boa coming across and like, they're just trying to like really share Korean culture with things that are around us. So you see like the biggest move would be like, it's an artist from Korea going to Japan. And yeah. that was like a huge success because we'd imported that and exported that. And like, oh my gosh, but it was still very like naked and its creation and its form. And I'd say a lot of that songwriting wasn't uniquely Korean. It was still like following pop recipes. The next stage, I would say, is like you start seeing major conglomerates come out in Korea, whether it's like YG, SM, JYP, and they have the sound, like the sound that I think a lot of us associate with K-pop, where it's like drawing upon a little bit of techno, a little bit of dance, very repetitive. And rather than it being about the music, it's more about like the visual, like, shock of it right and like people like associated k-pop with like crazy rainbow hair and really funky outfits and just like what is happening here such a good work shock it really is shocking like sensorially like truly like music videos that come out of k-pop when people talk about music videos and they don't know korean music videos i'm like no 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 i don't think you understand what i mean by a full 
on music video experience. <laughs> yeah. The budgets for these are also like crazy. If you think about the fact that they're quite small compared to some of the budgets we're seeing in America, but they're just so creative with like how they present the stuff on screen. And it's truly shocking. Like there's no other <laughs> word for it. I remember when I watched my first like K-pop music videos, I was just it was so immersive. I couldn't yeah. think about anything else. And it really just sucks you in because you've never seen anything else like it before. You've never seen five or seven people dancing in, you know, what we call in Korean, kalgamu, like, you know, perfect to the T. Everybody is in sync, like this crazy dance that you could never think of. And it's just like a truly like shocking experience to witness. And now I think we're in this fourth wave where instead of just being like a shock to the world, it's this elevated sense of let's bring in Korean culture, modernize it, but be super proud of the fact that this is uniquely ours. And so you're seeing this like blending of sound. Also, the sound has also evolved because, you know, at the most like basic of levels, artists are no longer singing songs that are written for them. A lot of them are super creative and are writing and producing their own music, which I think is super cool. A lot of the tools are more available to them. We're also seeing this generation of kids who are growing up listening to music from all around the world, rather than having like the four songs that were able to make it across to Korea from the US, they're listening to music from everywhere. I mean, you see songs from different regions of the world, Africa, Europe, you know, Southeast Asia, Brazil, even like coming in and people are consuming that and they're curious and they're being inspired. And so the music itself has become really elevated. But I think that there is this true like sense of we're so proud of where we come from. Wow, we can't believe we're on the global stage and we're going to claim this as ours. And so you see artists coming out now. I mean, with like BTS, even when they sing songs, they're dressed in like hanbok or they're yeah. performing in front of Gwangamun and things that are like very <laughs> Korean. And they're really proud of sharing that with the world. And so I think when I get really excited as I see this transformation happening, and I think it's happening across other cultures as well but like to your point about the diaspora because there's so many I think also Korea is uh, apparently I remember reading a stat a few years ago it is a number two most spread out diaspora in the entire world the first being the Jews the second are Koreans there are more Koreans living outside of Korea today than in Korea I believe and so if you think about that it makes a lot of sense that the Korean culture and the content that's coming out of our country now is going to be really proud to be sharing our culture because there are people literally in every single country in the world who are receiving it and looking at them being like, that's mine. I just got chills. Oh my gosh. No, that's so real because as we talk about how music and soft power, as Korea calls it, like all these things are being shipped out worldwide at a moment's notice. I feel like the first few waves, it was all about like, how can we get this one thing that we created out into the world? And now it's sort of like this connection that's happening between diaspora back to the motherland, between other cultures and back to Korean culture. And it's like this exchange. And I love that with things like TikTok or other mediums of storytelling where it's more interactive, there's sort of this like exchange of stories and music and remixes between different artists and different consumers. So yeah, the point about diaspora, the Korean diaspora being so spread out and the joy that people must feel like in South Africa or like London hearing this and connecting back to their roots is so, oh yeah, I just got chills. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool if you think about it. And I also think it's worth remembering, I have like tell myself our history is really long but also really short right so like as a korean people like thousands of years but as like a modern korea the way we know it 
it's been really recent. The war was in our grandparents' generation, yeah. right? And so it's really, really crazy that one where like, I remember hearing at the UN General Assembly, like some like snippets of it, how Korea is the only country that has modernized from a third world country to a first world economic power in a few decades. Like it is the only one that is now like seated at the United Nations General Assembly with such a different story from just like 50 years ago. And so what that means is I think people are really rising up in a way that they have never before. And you're seeing Koreans, like generations of them, wherever they are now with the privilege because of what the previous generations have gone through, because of where they have brought our nation, because of where we are able to be and we're so spread out in the world. Now they're curious again and they want to understand like, where do I come from? How do I add to this? And like, how do I make sense of this and share that? And that's yeah. a really a huge privilege to have. We're no longer just trying to survive. I think we've like moved on to this phase of, okay, like how do we continue to thrive and share yeah. this? I see so many parallels between when you were talking about BTS, I was going to say, I see so many parallels between my experience and BTS, which is a far stretch. So I will back up from there. But when you're talking about BTS dressing up in Hamburg, dancing in front of Kwangamun, it's like, that's like such an Asian diaspora thing to feel though. It's like you grow up like assimilating and all that stuff. And then it's like the reclaiming, reconnecting with the heritage. And it's interesting because they're from Korea and yet on a global scale, we're witnessing this parallel journey. But I think it's also in parallel with our healing because it's like to feel whole, to feel connected back to our roots, to feel grounded in our identity that allows us to feel like we can thrive. So I wanted to bring this up because I think as a Korean American, it's really challenging growing up with, you know, like pali pali culture or like you got to grind your way to the top sort of mentality where it's like, do you know where you come from? Like all that the culture has been through, it's like suffering is never too great to get to a certain place. Like that's like the culture I feel like that was ingrained in me. And so much of my somatic healing journey was like softening and being like, okay, like I am safe enough. I am privileged and safe enough to create out of joy, to live, you know, with ease. And I'm wondering like how that has been for you, knowing that you also grew up with that 1.5 generation experience. Yeah. I mean, what Korean doesn't know the word pali pali or like, <laughs> like Iruwa or like what else do I hear? Like, or just Han, straight up Han. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so real. And again, I think it's because like, I'm really curious, honestly, to see what this next generation will be like, because I don't think anyone in our generation is going to be raising the following generation with the exact same because we are so privileged, right? We're in this like precipice where we're seeing how we were raised, we're processing that and then deciding to take the things that serve us into the future and understanding that certain things don't have to serve us anymore, but being thankful because they served a purpose of like protection and survival, but we're no longer just trying to survive. And so that's kind of how I make sense of that. But it is really interesting to think about how like Han is a real thing, that concept of like pent up anger that you almost feel. 
I remember when I was younger, like seeing like elderly women, like beating their chest and being like, what is happening? And like, yeah. that is that sense yeah. of like, it's like, oh my, like, yeah. like, I don't think there's a word for that in English, like the same way or like, right? Mm-hmm. Like those like things don't really translate across. Yeah. But on the flip side, I think like, we're just a really expressive people. So like, while there is Han, while there is like, while there is ha, there's also tong, right? And I like to remember that our people, because of the history and the traumatic things that we've gone through, we're also like truly were a people that had to come here by helping one another, right? Like after the fallout of the war, there was nothing left. It's truly like, what's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Like, and you're next door neighbor where your family, like you have to help them. And that is like the side of the Korean heritage that I'm hoping to continue bringing into the future of the sense of like, oh, we, we we're allowed to relate on like a spiritual level, even if I've just met you now, right? Like there is something about traveling in a foreign country and you hear Korean at the table next to you <laughs> and you immediately flip your head and you're like, <gasps> right? Like what Korean has not gone through that? Where you're like literally in some different country in a different part of the world and you hear Korean at another table and you look at each other and you just like, right? and you're like, right? And like, I think like those things are like really beautiful. And I'm hoping that the future generations can really foster that as we not only care about bringing our culture into the world, but also like the next phase, in my opinion, is intersectionality. And so then how do we bring this into our sense of understanding where does that fit into the greater AAPI Mm -hmm. story? How do we then relate with other cultural groups, other ethnic groups, other races even, because that has to come together for a sustainable future. Yeah. And that's the last, well, not last piece, but it's an integral piece to that survival to thriving shift to coming together, trusting that we can all thrive. And I also just wanted to quickly go back to what you were saying about and like all the words that don't exist in English to capture just like how someone can feel. But I learned that there's not a lot of words in the Korean language that speak to the emotional intricacies of like what we describe in English. So like if you go to therapy and they ask you like, what are you feeling? Like that may not actually translate over to Korean. But a lot of Korean people, and I know we can go also have a whole other episode about like mental health and mm-hmm. Korean culture, but like given the stigma, given the lack of vocabulary, it's like it comes out in somatic symptoms or like body symptoms. So like if they don't want to see a therapist, but they are down to go to a doctor, they'll be like, I have a stomach ache or my chest hurts. And it's like they actually end up finding that it's like an emotional thing. And it, I think it just like, speaks to how as a culture so much of the trauma so much of the experiences have been so suppressed for so long and held in our bodies over generations and to see this generation kind of transmute that into art I think that's what's so remarkable about and what's so exciting about the intersection of Asian diaspora creativity and healing Mm, yeah Wait, so right before we had this conversation, I pulled a card for you. It said lead with joy, which first of all, made me smile right away because, you know, soy joy <laughs> is how, how I first met you. And the card said, follow the feelings of joy and happiness in your heart and have the courage and openness to follow what feels good and inviting that energy of joy into your field. So I wanted to ask you, 
channeling all of that, like what is your wildest dream as you think about what brings you the greatest joy? Oh my gosh. So it feels very relevant because I'm trying to actively learn to do that. Um, I was really thinking about my current journey and my career so far. And because it's been so hard to find people who look like me already doing this ahead of me, people who can be role models, I think it was often propelled by fear. Like the fear that I wouldn't make it, that people like me just don't have a seat at this table, that if I don't do enough, I will lose my seat immediately. And this like underlying intense anxiety, like every day just being like, oh my gosh, have I done enough? Like I am going to get forgotten. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. I can't believe it often felt like I was like just like inching my foot in the door and like begging Mm -hmm. for like the door not to shut on my foot. But what I've learned is kind of taking a step back, really trying to approach what I do with this like abundance mentality of I'm not fighting for a seat at the table. I'm not clawing for this door to be open. The door is open. Like people have come before me. They have already knocked that door down. And now it's really just about, I don't even know if I want to sit at the table. I think I want to build my own table next to it, honestly. Table with more people of color across all disciplines, across all backgrounds, people who come from all different parts of the diaspora, right? And to rethink, are these systems serving us? Like, are they actually serving the stories that we want to tell? And if not, then how do we do that better? And it's just so much, like, it's still freeing to kind of think about it in that perspective where who's to say that we have to do things the way they've always been done. If you just look at artists who are at the top of their game right now, no one is doing it the way you were supposed to. Like if we look at BTS, they were like an underdog label, (laughs) underdog artists. Like, you know, people didn't think they had a shot. And their story was so weird because they wanted to share a story of hope and unity instead of love songs and like trying to like pretend to be like your partner or like your wildest fantasy. They have never strayed into that territory. Their entire journey has been about inclusion of belonging and look where they are now. Right. And I, so I think like when I see those things that are happening, it's really encouraging. And so like for me now, my wildest dream is no longer to still have a seat at the table. I would say if I could do like anything in the world, my dream is to be this continued bridge, but continuing to empower this like Asia to the US, US to Asia connection, but also like opening the doors and people's minds across both markets to also then extend that to other regions of the world. How do like Korean artists, for instance, like how might they collaborate with a Nigerian artist? How might we bridge the gap to Brazil? Like how do we bring these like beautiful cultures all together and create content that is elevated and celebrated, even if it's not English? Like that is just my dream. I want to see that on a larger scale. Like I get really excited when I see content like Lupin, like, you know, do so well on Netflix. It was, it's French. It's so beautiful. It's so cool that we can understand that. And I often think about like like his um, his like statement that subtitles are just like a six inch like mm. fence that you have to get across. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely butchering it, but it's so true, yeah. right? Like there's so much expression and storytelling to be done. And so like, that is my dream to like be able to see a future and be part of a future where no matter where the story originates, like we should be able to celebrate and love and appreciate and enjoy and engage with it. And it's funny because when I was a middle schooler, like my dream was to be a diplomat. I wanted to like be at the UN. Wait, and me like, too in, really? in high school. No, I, I went into college thinking I was going to be a diplomat. And then I went into class for political science and I was like, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to <laughs> But I feel you on the future of diplomacy or the 
present day, like what diplomacy is. Like we literally see BTS at the UN. Like there's so many ways to be that bridge and to be the facilitator of different cultures and generations, 1.5, like all that stuff, like happens through so many mediums. And yeah, no, I, that really resonates with me because everything I do is also fueled by that same middle school, high school desire to facilitate and connect. Yeah. I think the future of diplomacy is not just in boardrooms with political people. I think it is in content, in art. It's in the way that we will raise future generations to make sense of their world and connect with one another and have a better sense of understanding and welcoming other people to their tables. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's my big dream. That's why I do what I do. I think people are often very confused because most people in music are just like, my dream is to get a Grammy. And I'm like, that's cool. But like, that's just not enough for me. And I'm not saying I'm better. I think it's just that we have very different ways of looking at what music can do. And for me, I just see it as this healing bridge that can Mm. really just open the door to understanding. I love that. My final question to you is, What do you think your younger self needed to hear? And what message would you like to share with her today? Wow. I think my younger self needed to hear that you should show up as you are and not be afraid. I think so much of my younger self was often just like nervous or scared that like she wouldn't be accepted the way she was and constantly assessing like, have I said the right thing? Do people like me? Um, Am I adding value to this room? Am I good enough? And not trying to be the best because I wanted to be like, I'm the best in the room, but like trying to be the best simply because she wanted to be liked and Mm -hmm. to be accepted. Right. But I think what this journey, like the last 10 years, honestly, of my life have been trying to walk away from that as like, I don't need to do anything to make anyone like me. If I want to do something, it should be because I genuinely love it. And it comes from a place of curiosity and because it makes me feel happy and because I can add value to the world by doing this. But even if I choose to not do anything that day, I'm still enough the way I am. And I wish I could tell my younger self that. Yeah. That sense of wholeness, the sense of worth that comes internally and not at those tables where our younger selves were begging for scraps. So I hear you. I receive your dream. I am so excited for that future to unfold and for you to be part of that and for you to lead that. So Soy, where can we find you and support you? Oh gosh. Um, I guess my website or my Instagram, uh, it's a little cheesy, but everything is Sojourn. <laughs> I thought it was really witty when I made it uh, when I was in college. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's a playoff of Sojourn and the sense that I've always been traveling and journeying throughout my life. And so Soy plus Sojourn equals Sojourn. Well, thank you, Soy, for coming on Sensorial. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed the show. I would love to hear what resonated with you. And the best way to connect is by joining the Sensorial community on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash sensorial with Eunice to check out all the exciting offerings, including bonus content, behind the scenes stories, and somatic healing with the community. Be part of the founding member circle today by going to patreon.com slash sensorial with Eunice. 
Your support means the world to me and it helps fuel the future of the show. You can also find me on Instagram at Eunice.ks and go to my website, EuniceKS.com to sign up for my newsletter and hit the reply button to directly connect with me. Have a beautiful rest of your day and connect soon. Bye.